Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. In the opening scenes of the movie entitled The Born Identity, Jason Bourne is found searching for his identity. He has lost contact with who he really is. And so he goes to locate a safety, bo- a safety deposit box which contains some of the essential items that he has used to make himself uh, um, uh, quite uh, the assassin uh, in this story. And that begins to trigger some of his uh, memories about who he is. Throughout the storyline, it's not just this movie, but throughout several of the stories, he's saved from near-death experiences, uh, losing his life at the hands of those trying to take him out. And through those events, and he suffers amnesia, but along the journey, he begins to figure out who he is, who his true identity is. And so from the first movie to the last... That search for who he really is, uh, is is chronicled. And along the way, he'll find clues and people that will help him understand as he begins to connect the dots uh, as to who he truly is. But that is not the case with Jesus. When Jesus was born, his true identity was found in the word of God through the prophets on the night of his birth announced by the angels to the shepherds on the hillside. To the wise men, a bright star was in the sky which communicated to them that something, someone special, had been born. In our time this year, as we're celebrating Advent and we reflect on the time of Advent, um, we are taking this journey through Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which simply says, For unto us a child is born. Who is that child? Today we're going to look into scripture and identify who that child is, Jesus the Messiah. In our day and time, we can get to a place where we celebrate Christmas in such a way that it tarnishes what is really the staggering reality of what happened that night. Um, We can look at a lovely nativity such as what we have up there and realize, okay, that's that's an artistic rendering. Um, I don't know all of the things that happened that night, but I would tend to think after witnessing my own wife give birth several times, she did not look like Mary um, is right there, nor did any of my children look like that. Um, They were doing children things, right? That's what babies do. They they can't take care of themselves. Um, And so an artistic rendering is nice, but we celebrate things in such a way with lights and music, um, stories, that we can let those visuals, we can let um, the audible things we hear around this time of year, even the aesthetics of uh, our day and time affect what happened that night. And really to a point where we, we can lose track of that. And, and we, uh, we cannot get to a place where we just let this season go, where we miss the true adoration of the season and adoring of the Christ child and the Christ that he grew up in to be. 
that he grew up to be, and, and we just exchange that for emotional pleasure of a nice time at the end of the year where we get to have lots of gifts and presents and more pie. These things, this season, the way we celebrate it, if we let it, could lead us into a false identity of who Jesus is. So much to the point where we equate him like Santa Claus. We see him with a Santa Claus theology, if you will. Sinclair Ferguson has been helpful for me in understanding that, and he said this. He said, how sadly common it is for the church to manufacture a Jesus who is a mirror reflection of Santa Claus. In effect, he becomes Santa Christ. And then he gives three examples to, what it, to, to his point. The first is Santa Christ number one. He asks us whether we have been good. Since the assumption is that we are all naturally good, Santa Christ asks us whether we have been good enough. So then, Jesus is kind of an added bonus for those who, who make a good life even better. He is not the Christ who came to save sinners. Santa Christ number two is a slightly more sophisticated Jesus who, Santa-like, gives gifts to those who have already done the best that they could. This Jesus, his hands are like Santa's sack, open to give us whatever higher, uh, according to, to the higher percentile answer we can give to, have you done your best this year? The higher you score, the better the gift. Here we find the old saying, God helps those who help themselves. That is not biblical. It's not true. Santa Christ number three is a mystical Jesus. Like Santa Claus is important because the good experiences that we have when we think about it. It's kind of a, a mystic reality, right? It doesn't matter if the story is true or not, but the important thing is the spirit of Santa Christ. Please do not confuse the world's thinking with biblical truth. This morning we want to point you to the true Christ, identify him by the inerrant word of God. This Advent season again, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Who is that child? Last Sunday we looked at just a small portion of the prophecies regarding who this child would be, the Christ. We looked at hope promised. Today we look for the hope identified and who that son, that child would be, his born identity. In Hebrews chapter 1, if you're using the Advent journal that the staff wrote, I hope you are. I hope you've been blessed by that this week. But through that outline of, of those weeks, Hebrews chapter 1 was what was guiding my thoughts on that. And Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says, Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's why we looked at some of the prophecy for last Sunday. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Who is that child born unto us? I have you in Romans chapter 1 because Paul also writes something very similar to the introduction of Hebrews in his opening letter to the Romans. And he says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was ascended, excuse me, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and who was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for sending this Son. Thank you for the promise that unto us a child would be born, a son would be given. It's not just to us, 
because of who we are, but Lord, because of your love for your creation, your love for the nations, your love for all people that you have given your son, that he would die on the cross to take our place, that we through him would receive grace and a calling upon our life to obedience, faithful obedience, that you would call us to life change through the blood of Jesus. Father, thank you for identifying him with your scripture and that we can look today and find him and know the truth. Father, what we do not know, I pray you would teach us. What we are not yet, I pray you would make us for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Look back at verses one and two, my friends. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Friends, his identity, that is of the child born to us, his identity is proclaimed in God's gospel. This is where his credentials are. We want identification, right? You go travel in an airport or you're flying these days, you gotta have your, your ID, you gotta have a little gold star on it. You're gonna travel internationally, you gotta have a passport. That's your credential to allow you on the plane. This is the credential of the one who would be born to us. And this is his word, inerrant in every way. This is how we come to find and identify the true Christ who, was come, who had come to us in this magnificent season. When we look into the word of God, we find there the Messiah in the Old Testament described in multiple times in different ways. We find a great deal of information that would help us identify who the one is, who this child is that would be born to us. We find his family lineage. We find his place of birth. We find the time frame for his arrival, even in the scriptures. These things all help us to identify the real deal Messiah and reject all of the fake messiahs that were coming along. Here's a few points of interest. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, there it says that he would be from the tribe of Judah. There God tells his people, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah would always have a king, and that is found, of course, in Christ. He is a descendant of King David in 2 Samuel chapter, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is what the Lord covenants to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you shall come from, uh, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There you see, he will be a descendant, a direct descendant of King David. Micah chapter two, uh, 5, verse 2, tells us that he would be born in Bethlehem. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, something later in his life, tells us that the king would ride on a donkey. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's fulfilled, of course, when we celebrate what's known as Palm Sunday, when he entered into Jerusalem, not on a stallion, but rather on a donkey. Psalm chapter two, uh, 22 tells us that how he would endure suffering and torture unto death. Isaiah chapter 53 is familiar to many of you. It tells us the suffering that he would endure as the Lamb of God. Silence at his trial, his death, his burial, even in a rich man's tomb, which we find fulfilled in the Gospels. It even tells us of the resurrection. Lineage, birthplace, time, lifestyle. These are all the expectations and prophecies, and Jesus fulfilled every single one of them with every I dotted and every T crossed. 
Now, for Paul, this gospel that he's talking about is proclaiming the identity of that very Messiah. It is a part of God's unchanging purpose. God still has that unchanging purpose today. For Paul, it was not the latest fad to come along. He didn't change much. Rather, his whole life was changed because of the grace of God. He wasn't adjusting with the latest thing to come along, but rather God radically changed his life, changed his heart, and now he proclaims this message because he understood that this was God's unchanging purpose. This is why he says in verse 16 of Romans chapter 1, this very thing, that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Paul lived that firsthand with firsthand knowledge when his life was changed on the road to Damascus. How do we know? How can we know what Paul knows? The same way he did, which is because he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. It is God's gospel. We turn to the gospel of God and see where this good news is. All of the announcements of who Christ would be, all the things that Christ would do, are grounded in this promise that he laid out for us. The promise that gave way to fulfillment, which is God's work of salvation. This is why we have to identify Jesus as the Messiah. The Old Testament prophets, says Tim Keller, are the scaffolding on which Paul stands as God's herald. Without the prophets, Paul doesn't have anything to stand on. Every page that God wrote before outlines what Paul now is declaring in full color and what God has certainly declared in full color in the coming of Christ. This is God's gospel. The content of the gospel certainly concerns his son. The content of the gospel concerns the Son of God. This content, this whole book, points us to Jesus, the Messiah. Look again at Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The gospel of God, which God has promised through the scriptures concerning his son, and then Paul identifies him, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now listen, you know this, but I'll remind you, Christ is not his last name. That's his title. Christ is the same as Messiah. One's Greek, one's, one's Hebrew. Christ, Messiah. Jesus, Messiah. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul gives us two reasons why Jesus Christ is our Lord and why he was the Messiah. First one is this. He says he's a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now, if you turn over to Matthew chapter 1 for a moment, go ahead and do that just briefly. Uh, first book of the New Testament, right? If you hit Malachi, you went one too far. If you look at the first 17 verses, you might just want to skip over that someday because some of these names are a little bit hard to pronounce. I mean, like, we don't name our children Ram. That's not hard. But how about the father of Aminadab? Anybody want to name your child that? Okay. Lots of Bubba's in there if you're, if, if you're from George West like me. But here we go. There's a whole line of people, people that we would recognize. Abraham, the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. What we have in Matthew's gospel God's gospel is a long list of the generations leading up to the birth of Jesus. He is a descendant of David. God promised David he would have a man on the throne. That man is the God-man, Jesus. He is the one descended directly from David. Hezekiah, David, 
Ruth, Solomon, Boaz, Josiah. Names that we've heard this year walking through the Old Testament church. But what is of greater importance is what Matthew gives you in verses 1 through 18, which is four times, four times in all of those names, but four times in 18 verses that Matthew identified Jesus as Messiah. And then he spends the rest of the 28 chapters of Matthew working that out, telling you, showing you, writing about how he is, in fact, the Messiah, the appointed to be powerful son of God, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Paul has identified, back to Romans chapter 1, Paul has identified in the gospel of God, for which he is an apostle, one who is sent out to preach and proclaim the answer to who the Messiah was. He is Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah. For Paul, the rest of scripture plays that out. Christ Jesus, all the hopes of the promise, all the hopes of God's people are fulfilled in God's promise of Jesus Christ. God's son was the father's game plan all along. It wasn't a substitute game plan. He didn't put it in at the last second. It was that game plan all along. Back in the fall of 2020, uh, college football played an abbreviated season. Lots of games got canceled because too many players on one particular team would get sick. It was a great year for my beloved team, um, not so much this year. They tell us it's a rebuilding year. Okay. But in that season, there was a week and a game that really fascinated me as a fan of the sport. Coaches plan almost even from the spring and offseason, they begin game planning for the next year, for the next opponent. Um, But these two coaches from BYU and Coastal Carolina had a very short time to game plan. Both teams had their games canceled that week. Both teams were doing really well. Both teams wanted to make a big-time bowl game called the New Year's Six Games. Two schools, 2,200 miles apart, had never played before and probably wouldn't schedule one another into the future. They just had a short time. They got notified on Thursday that they were going to play on Saturday. Short time. Substitute game plan. We got to make all these kinds of... And actually, what, I, what happened was a fantastic game. It was, a, it was an amazing game if you love the sport. But God's son was not a substitute plan He was the substitute planned all along. It wasn't a last-minute thing. For centuries, for eternity, this was the plan. His son for the reconciling of lost sinners. Jesus to save lost sinners. This gospel is about a person. My friends, this is a personal thing. It's not a concept. It's not just a theology book, but it's personal. This gospel of God is about Christ Jesus. It points us to him. This was Paul's whole point in writing this letter so that we would know. John's gospel, he says the same thing, although at the end he says, these things I have written that you may know that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Christ, that you may know and believe, he said. Well, we can struggle at best to fully grasp the gospel, my friends, until we get to the point where we understand that the gospel is not fundamentally about us. See, that's the Santa Claus theology. That's the Santa Christ theology where we think it's about us. We make it about us. But rather, it's it's not about our lives, our dreams, and our hopes. The gospel speaks to and transforms 
us by God's grace, therefore changing our life, our dreams, our hopes by God's grace. The gospel is a declaration about God's son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. That son was Jesus, fully human and fully God. Verse 3 and verse 4, look at those for a moment. He says, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, that is, he's fully man, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, and by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The one who fulfilled the promises of Scripture. Again, a descendant of David, just as God said he would and covenanted with David centuries before. If you look into David's life even, you will see that there are glimpses, a, a foreshadowing of the one who is to come. David wasn't complete. He wasn't perfect. Therefore, he could not be the one who was to come. But he gave us glimpses and foreshadows into Jesus' life. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Psalm chapter 22, where when Christ was on the cross, what did he say? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That comes from Psalm chapter 22. Psalm 110. Let me go back and just read for you real quick. Uh, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, There he says, I will tell of the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. If you know where that comes from, it comes when into Jesus' life when he's baptized. Right after he's baptized, he comes up out of the water, the spirit descends upon him, and he hears the voice, and that's what he hears. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Mm, What a moment. See, there are glimpses from David's life that foreshadow Jesus' life. But what about his birth? What about all the things leading up to that? Well, his parents did as instructed. They obeyed and they named him Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. God would use four different messengers to announce the birth uh, and identify the Savior. Four different times, four different messengers, right? There's the angels to the shepherds as captured in Luke chapter 2. The angels on the hillside, they they tell you uh, exactly. They're quoting out actually from Isaiah. Then you have the star that guide the Magi a little bit later in life. In Matthew chapter 2, most believe by that time Jesus is a, is a little toddler. You have Simeon in Luke chapter 2 as well. Now, how did Simeon know? Because this is about eight days. They bring Jesus to the temple to present him at the temple. Simeon is only alive because God's keeping him alive because he promised Simeon he would not die until he saw the Christ child. They bring Jesus to the temple to present him as they would any Hebrew boy would be presented at the temple, which is proper according to the law. There Simeon receives him, and the Holy Spirit allows him to know that this is the Christ child. It says about Simeon, this man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. Anna, right after the story of Simeon in Luke chapter 2, She recognizes, she's a prophetess, she's in the temple, she recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah because of Simeon and also because of God. Four different ways God spoke to people in the moment when the child is born or shortly after, all identifying him as the Messiah, the Christ child, the promised one. You look into Jesus' life, his ministry, the signs that he worked, the, the miracles that he performed, all of those things attest to his identity because the scriptures tell us that he would do that. One of the greatest moments in his ministry is actually when Peter confesses him in his identity. Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus, it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, 
Others, Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, what, who do you say that I am? And that's when Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus goes on to tell him, hey, you didn't just deduce that from your own intellect, Peter. God has spoken that to you. God has revealed that to you. Mm. And then we have this divine side of Jesus, this deity. In in verse 4, he says that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus was designated Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, the Son of God in power. That resurrection is key. It sets Jesus apart from all the other fake messiahs that would come around. It authenticates his deity. It authenticates his messiahship, if you will. Paul isn't saying that Jesus only became God's son when he was raised from the grave. He's giving rather two great important truths to his identity. One was the empty tomb. The empty tomb is the great proclamation of who Jesus was, is, and will always be. Without the resurrection, my friends, we are most pitied. But the resurrection removes all doubt. If you still doubt that, go read 1 Corinthians 15, please, and read the account of how many people had an eyewitness account of seeing Jesus after the resurrection. It's over 500. Friend, that'll hold up in any courtroom today. 500 eyewitnesses to his resurrection. The resurrection and the ascension are his rightful path to his rightful place at the right hand of God where he is today. There was no back door for Jesus into that. He had to go through the cross, from the cradle to the cross. He had to go to the tomb. He had to go to those three days. And then he came back. And then he's ascended at the right hand of God. Now we wait for his return. He was appointed as the son of God in power. He, was, he had power before, but when he came here, he came humbly as a man. He tasted the struggles of life. That's found in Philippians chapter two. He tasted the struggles of life. He endured rejection. He suffered at the hands of his own people. He suffered death. But the resurrection is where we see not only that he is the son of God, but that he is truly the son of God in power. That is why hope is identified in him. And his name is Jesus Christ, my friend. Emmanuel, God with us. And if Jesus had not risen from the dead, he would only be remembered as a moralistic teacher on the same level of maybe as Gandhi or some of the other great philosophers in the world history. Maybe a prophet or something, but but not the Messiah, not the Christ, not the Savior of the world. And as a result of the resurrection, he is testified to as God's unique, exalted over death, victorious over Satan, invested with all power, son. In fact, he told his disciples that in Matthew chapter 28. He says, when he came to them, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's after the resurrection. He is the son of God now in power. He is the born identity, the real, authentic, true son of God. There is no questioning in his mind, or there should be none in ours, that this is who the Bible claims he is, and this is who he is according to the word of God, which stands over all other truth in this world. The Messiah was born so that you may have life. He is the eternal son, become the incarnate son of God, to be the Davidic son of God, through his life, death, and resurrection. He is now the redeemer, the redeemer that we needed, the only one who can undo the curse of sin. 
He is the only one that can undo the work of the first Adam. Purchase our pardon. Offer forgiveness. Bring in God's kingdom. Bring in the new creation when all was said and done. He must be God incarnate. In fact, that's exactly what John's gospel tells us. John doesn't give us a birth narrative. He gives us kind of a pre-incarnate narrative, if you will. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Mm. Now, to make this personal, what we need to hear Paul saying this morning is what the Word of God says is that the Son is concerned about you. That God sent him to change your life. No other self-proclaimed Messiah was concerned about those around them. See, in the inner, between the Old Testament and New Testament, and I'm sure there's others that are not captured in Scripture, but between those two times, there's a pretty good span of times, several centuries, about 400 years somewhere in there is the numbers coming in my mind. There were a number of Messiah-type figures that were coming. They would rise up to power. There's a lot of political tension in those days between the Testaments because Rome is in power. And the Jews are tired of being under someone else's foot. They don't want to be under Rome anymore. And so these Messiahs would come along, these Messiah-type figures would come along and portray themselves as Messiah-type figures only to lose battles, to die at the hands of the Romans. They were concerned about political power. They were concerned about political freedom. That's why so many of the Jews in his day missed Jesus because of that heightened political tension with Rome. They were expecting that warrior stallion riding Jesus. And instead they got the humble donkey riding Jesus, the true Christ. But friends, his life stands in stark contrast to all of those other types and figures that came. Because in Christ, we have the atonement for sin. We have reconciliation with God. He is the one, that Messiah. My friends, the one that is identified as the promised Messiah has made peace with God on your behalf. And that's not some whimsical fairy tale. It's not something hoped for in our good deeds or in our good behavior that hopefully we get a toy out of the bag because we've been good enough. No, our, our Messiah has purchased our pardon on Calvary's tree. And now he stands in victory. And because of Christ Jesus, sin has lost its curse on us. If you're following him, if you've trusted him, sin has lost its curse. Paul says in verses 5 and 6 that through Christ, Paul has received grace and a calling, the apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith. That's why he's writing this letter, so that all the nations would know about Christ. So that that gospel, God's gospel, for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, would go to the nations among all the Gentiles. You know, only Paul could write something like that. He was a Jewish Pharisee. He was educated in all the schools of theology that Hebrews could offer and throw at him as a Pharisee in Jerusalem. He couldn't stand the Gentiles. If he was a true Jewish Pharisee, he would not be able to stand the Gentiles, which is anybody that's not a Jew. But as a man saved by grace, having a personal encounter on the road to Damascus with Jesus, he could not wait to tell them about Jesus. His life was changed. 
as a Pharisee who couldn't stand Christians and who he was persecuting Christ himself, which is what Jesus tells him on the road to Damascus. Now he is a man saved by grace, proclaiming Christ. That's the life change. That's why Jesus came. He is concerned about you and he wants to change your life. He wants to take you from death to life. And that's what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter two. Friends, it's not, this season is not about Red Rider BB guns or new Lego sets, iPhones, or the threat of missing Christmas because Santa Claus slid off of Scott Calvin's roof. Thank you for picking up, I heard chuckles, you picked up on my Christmas movies. That's my favorite list. Friends, the truth is, the truth is this, Jesus didn't come to add to our comfort. He did not come to help those who are ready to help themselves or who were already helping themselves or to give us more wonderful life experiences around Christmas. His was a mission of deliverance. His was a mission to save sinners. He was not conceived for those who have done their best. But for those who understand the truth, which is that our best is like filthy rags before him. He came to save sinners. He came to suffer all the pain of death and hell in order to be our savior. And I urge you, if you have not trusted him today, that you would do so today. It's called faith. Trust him. Trust in the one Messiah, identified in scripture as the Messiah, Jesus, the one who's promised to be born, born in a stable, identified as Messiah, who gives grace and mercy and forgiveness to those who call, to those he calls, and to those who respond by faith. Faith, remember, is not just intellectual agreement with a set of historical facts, but rather it is surrender, trusting everything in your life to the one who asks you to trust him. Listen to the promises of God from Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 regarding this transformed life. Paul writes, In verse 12, at that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. There's a story about the Dallas Mavericks owner, Mark Cuban, about 20 years ago, and he offered a radio talk show host from WGN Radio, so I assume that was out of Chicago, um, a radio sports talk show host named David Kaplan. He offered him $50,000 to legally change his name, his identity, to Dallas Maverick. Now, why you'd want to do that, I don't know. I'm not a Dallas Maverick fan. I say go Spurs, go. But Kaplan declined the offer. And so Mark Cuban seems to be made of money. He, offered, he raised the stakes and offered him $100,000 plus an extra $100,000 to his favorite charity. Kaplan was bombarded by emails from listeners telling, telling him, you'd be nuts to turn this money down. I mean, $100,000. But he ended up saying no. And he said, I'd, I'd be saying I'd do anything for money, and that bothers me. My name is my birthright, and I'd like to preserve my integrity and credibility. Friends, well, for one, Jesus isn't for sale. He's not giving up his naming rights. He is strong and steadfast. 
by God's grace, what I hold in my hands, God's gospel, is the credible and integrity-laden word of God by which we know that Jesus is our blessed redeemer, that Jesus is the promised Messiah, now hope identified. Would you trust him today?